Climate Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Jason Kunitz works at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and is a self-proclaimed EPA super geek, and he's excited to spread the message. Jason has to be one of the most fascinating earthlings you'll hear on the show this season. After working as a petrochemical corporate attorney in Alaska, Jason left to get lost in the Alaska wilderness, where he spent eight years living in remote villages and working with First Nation communities. In recent years, he started working for the EPA, an organization he's been infatuated with since he was a youngling. Now, we know what you're wondering. Why have someone from the EPA on this season? Well, we wanted to ask the question of how the EPA can work with for-profit companies, or does the EPA even want to work with for-profit companies? We met Jason, and he also wanted to come on and bring some of his personal views on the effects of climate change in places he's lived, like Alaska. So we'll learn all that and a few other things, like how the EPA started, what impact they've had over the last 50 years, and that catching a crab may not mean what you think. Little disclaimer, Chasen came to give his personal views on our climate problems, not as a representative of the EPA in any official standing. But I know you're still going to learn a ton, and he provides a really cool picture and connection to for-profit companies. So stick with us. Enjoy. Mayhem on. Mayhem on. Chasen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Jacob. Great to be here. We're really pumped to have you on the show. We have gotten a bunch of companies, and we thought having someone who has spent a lot of time in Alaska, who has worked for the EPA, which has been in some way a really pivotal force, right, in the past 50 years in the U.S. since President Nixon created the agency. It's an agency, right? It is, yeah. It's an executive agency. Not a lot of people know that it was founded by Nixon, actually, who is a, a Republican. So, yeah, in 1970, he he started this whole thing up. And uh, it, it's actually pretty fascinating how that came about. But we can talk about that. 
Great. after the intro, I guess. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Jason, what uh, what does catching a crab mean? It's a saying that I found <laughs> online. I thought you might yeah. be familiar with. Yeah. So for your listeners' benefit, I'm a rower and a, a rowing coach here in Seattle. And uh, catching a crab is probably one of the worst things that any rower can experience in the boat. Basically, when you're rowing, your oar goes from vertical to horizontal. It's called being on the square versus being on the feather. And the momentum of the boat is a just a tremendous thing. It's a force to be reckoned with. And each time you take a stroke, if you envision like a bike wheel, it's like you're tapping a spinning bike wheel along. You're not grabbing it and, and thrusting it forward. You're just really giving it more momentum, but it's already got a significant amount of momentum. So basically, catching a crab is when you fail to get your oar horizontal to the water in time with the rest of the boat. So everybody else has gotten their oar out of the water, but your oar is still stuck there in that vertical position. And the force of the boat as it drives that oar through the water basically lands full on your chest. <laughs> and oh. Yeah. And it's broken ribs, sternum, oh, wow. collarbones. Yeah. In the worst case scenarios, it, it has literally jettisoned people out of the boat. That's what we call an ejector oh, crab. My God. Yeah, wow. It's, it's a, a whiplash by the it's, time. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, and, you know, if you're rowing along at 34, you know, sometimes 40 strokes a minute, it's, it's very fast. And so it can happen in the blink of an eye. And the next thing you know, you're, you're in the drink. So that wow. is catching a crab. Yeah. How fast in a competitive race does a rowing boat go either in knots or miles per hour? or Yeah. Uh, some start? of the fastest boats will get up to like 25 miles an hour. Um, oh my goodness. But that that's a, a very high level of performance, like your Olympic caliber uh eight man shells. Yeah. How about the ones that you are involved in? Is there more like twenty, fifteen, or <laughs> no, what? nowhere near as fast? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And then there's a position within the rowing boat, the team. It's called the Cox Coxon. Yeah, the Coxon. You got it right. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the what's the purpose of the Coxon? I would argue that the Coxon, uh, who fills a function in eight man boats or eight woman boats uh, or four person boats. And they are steering. They're making the calls about when we're going to pick up the rate, when we're going to apply more power, any technical improvements that we need. They're really like the, the captain or the coach in the boat, but their biggest concern is safety, making sure that we're not hitting anything, not hitting other boats. It's a pivotal role. And I, I would argue easily the, the most important in any boat Opinions on this vary, but that's, okay. that's my call. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are the other opinions? Oh, I, I think rowers can sometimes have very strong opinions. And um, <laughs> I, I think some of the best rowers I've met have been very humble. And so I aspire to that humility. Uh, so nice. other rowers might, might not necessarily think the coxswains are, are that important, but I, I would disagree. Is the coxswain a pretty tall person? Small? No, small? They, they tend to be very small. Yeah. Uh, okay. We, we want to have as little drag on that boat as possible. And so that means that uh, we obsess with, uh, we call it power per pound is what some coaches call it. Oh, wow. uh, others others yeah. call it like power to weight ratio, but you, you want your coxswain to be as, as small as possible. And that's, that's kind of one of the opinions of rowers that coxswains are just dead weight, which I don't agree with whatsoever. <laughs> I think they very much Got demonstrate it. their value. Yeah. yeah. Yep, but generally yep. they're, they're very small humans. And the coxswain sure. at the very front, they're not rowing, right? So they're not adding power units. Yeah, but they are facing the direction that the that the boat is going. And that's that's pretty oh. critical. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What, Everyone do, else is facing the opposite way, right? Yeah, we're all going backwards, man. <laughs> <laughs> do they have a microphone? 
They do. Yeah. They have a microphone and they have anywhere from four to two speakers throughout the boat so that we can hear them. Yeah. Some of the best boats I've been in are tremendously loud because as you're doing the squaring feathering action that I mentioned earlier, you're actually creating kind of a knocking sound and it's, it's really cool. It's like you're being in the, in the middle of a drum circle. And one of my favorite coaches described rowing, not so much as boating as just a collective percussion experience. And <laughs> you were just all trying to drum in the same time with one another. So it can get pretty that's loud. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It seems like there needs to be some modern movie that comes out about rowing and the rowing culture. <laughs> Cause I know there is a movie that came out in the eighties with Rob Lowe mm, and, mm-hmm. and he's a rower at, as like, it's an Ivy league school. And he like, you know, he shows up, he sucks and then he gets really good. And then something yeah. happens and like, we need something like that now. You know, they, they just kicked out a movie called The Novice, which is sort of like a horror film. It's a bit like a thriller. It's <laughs> about this girl. Yeah, it's about this girl that picks up rowing and she pretty quickly kind of like loses her mind about it, which isn't far oh, wow. from the truth. <laughs> yeah, But uh, it, it, is it enters, like a, her obsession of it or something. Exactly. Yeah. Got and it. just yeah, kind yeah. of her, her overbearing like drive to succeed. But uh-huh. we do actually have okay. a, an amazing feature film coming out produced by George Clooney, of all people. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's an adaptation of the book Boys in the Boat, which was a, a national bestseller and actually based here in Seattle for some of it. Um, and it's about the uh, University of Washington men's rowing team that went across to Germany uh, during those Olympics and basically super underdog story, but they trounced Hitler's German boat who were predicted to win. And these were just like the sons of fishermen and loggers uh, from, you know, pioneer days, Washington. And it's a, it's a really, really amazing tale. And a lot of rowers call it the Holy grail of books okay. in, our, in our culture. Yeah. So George Clooney's uh, I think wrapped up principal photography on that and we'll be doing post pro here for a, a release next year sometime. I can't wait yeah. to see that movie. I know. Yeah, that's cool. Me too. Yeah. I think I've heard about the documentary that because like there was a documentary yeah. recently or a few years yeah. ago, right? Yeah, yeah, PBS did that. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. University of Washington. That's 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 where I went. Nice. Chase, you didn't go to UW, right? I did not. No, I I rode briefly for the Huskies of the East at Northeastern University in Boston. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is that where you got your JD? No, I went to Willamette University down in Oregon. Um, okay. Coincidentally, cool. actually, rowing had a part to play in that. They had an undergrad rowing team, and I was privileged enough to coach there while I went to law school. So I got to help out with that nice. program. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. And how did you end up becoming a lawyer? Why, why did you end up becoming a lawyer? Yeah. So I was on the debate team in high school and college. And so I've, I've always had kind of a, an analytical mind around arguments and later policy when I got into policy debate. And then after college, uh, I graduated with a degree in finance and I went to work as an auditor. Really enjoyed it. I, I found kind of the problem solving and investigatory aspects of auditing to just be fascinating. And ultimately, I ended up working for some attorneys and just the way that their minds worked, I found riveting. I loved how everything was a puzzle that needed to be solved. There was no complexity that was insurmountable. It, they were also a very collaborative group, which unfortunately not a lot of lawyers at that camp, but they convinced me that I should try for the LSAT. And I did. I did terribly. So I studied a little <laughs> bit more. Um, and then I, I, I did okay enough to get accepted to some schools. And as right. I mentioned, Willamette had a rowing team and it just felt like a great vibe. It's a smaller school. Definitely 
a better uh, professor to student ratio. And, and that's kind of what I was looking for. I wanted something where I, I could just feel the good vibes and, and catch that passion from my instructors. Okay. You're originally from Michigan. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Why I was, Oregon? I was born in LA and uh, actually moved to Michigan. Yeah. Kind of early in my childhood and went to high school in Michigan, which is where I found rowing. But during my rowing career, I had the opportunity to race in the Pacific Northwest. And I was just enamored from moment one. I also dated a girl that had family in Seattle. So we came out to visit uh, when I was younger and just great formulative memories of the mountains, kind of meeting the ocean. It's a unique place here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm I glad I found it. Yeah. A second that. Ty's actually from California. Oh, neat. Yeah. And I came up here for a very similar reason. Like this. <laughs> the mountains meet the ocean was just exactly what i what i got enamored by too so yeah absolutely love it it's a it's a stunning place to be i feel so fortunate agreed i was born here so i, I immediately took it for granted and uh <laughs> it, it wasn't until i got stoned one day someone was driving us to a concert and i looked on we were like going over i think it was west seattle and I looked on the horizon. I was just like, "Oh my God, there's such beauty here!" Like it, it took me <laughs> over 20 years to right. acknowledge it and get it. And then since then, it's been like a new beginning. Like I'm not not kidding. And as cheesy as that all sounds, you know, I appreciate that. That's cool, Jason. What got you interested in climate sustainability space? So uh, I imagine you've been thinking about these issues for a while since you spent a lot of time in Alaska where it becomes clear signs of how global warming climate change is happening. And you were a lawyer and you mentioned auditing. I imagine those auditing of, of companies and, and mm-hmm. there's some like kind of regulation aspect to it. What got you into this? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I, I spent a fair bit of time in Alaska right after I graduated from law school. I hit the road. I think it was the day after my graduation, uh, I drove north on the Alcan Highway, is what it's called, all the way through Canada and up through wow. the interior of Alaska. It is a long drive. Yeah, I managed to knock it out in like two and a half days, though, because I was. Oh wow! Yeah, I was. I was kind of just that excited about my my next step. I had no idea what I was getting into. The Alaskan culture overall is just very unique. Alaskan issues are singular to that state. And it's kind of one of those things where unless you know, you know, or if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. 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 So the the more time I spent in Alaska, um, I, I lived three solid years in Anchorage before I got the opportunity to really explore rural Alaska, which is where these issues took on a new reality for me. I I think the Alaska conversation about climate change and environmentalism has been going on for a while. For those not aware, the Exxon Valdez, uh, which was a major oil tanker, spilled in Prince William Sound, Alaska, I think about 20 years ago. I should look that up, but it was a major ecological catastrophe. And come to think of it, I think it was longer than 20 years ago. I think it's close to 30 now that I kind of... 1989. Yep. 1989. Okay. Not that far off. So yeah, it was, it was awful. And Prince William Sound is, I think one of my favorite places in Alaska. It's teeming with wildlife today, many years after that spill, but people still talk about it. Like it was, it was a terrorist attack. Like it was an affront to their society. And the, the fervor that I noticed amongst people, it was harrowing in a way that I I haven't seen a lot of people express about the environment or about climate change. And it struck a chord with me. Alaska politics are very intense. Everybody knows their local politicians. Everybody is actively involved. Like it's, it's actually got a pretty high rate of voter turnout per capita. 
And so like everybody's talking about local issues, which are Alaska issues all the time. So eventually I, I got the opportunity uh, after working kind of indirectly for some oil and gas companies and, and mining companies as well. And um, that just kind of, it left me feeling weird. I, I wasn't stoked about who I was working for or their, their end goals, but I will say that it was an invaluable training ground for me to really learn the science behind a lot of these issues indirectly again from, you know, the geologists or geotechnical engineers that I was working with. Got to work with a volcanologist once who studied volcanoes. That was extraordinarily wow. cool. Yeah. Wow. But to get back to your original question, Jacob, the first time that I came really close to just awestruck entanglement in this issue, I went to Wales, Alaska. W-A-L-E-S. And if any of your listeners want to check it out on a map, it is the westernmost community in the contiguous North American states or countries. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it, wow. it's way out there. You can actually see Russia from Wales, which is something <laughs> that a famous Alaska politician said you could do from all over Alaska, but it's really only true right. for a very limited space. Yeah. And Wales wow. had experienced massive erosion and an elder that I, I got to kind of hang out with a little bit took me to check out a photo taken from a mountain kind of on the outskirts of town of their beach. And this was a beach that I'd spent by that point, like about five days, just kind of traipsing around and checking it out. It was kind of my evening activity. And when he showed me how much of the coastline had changed since that photo was taken, which wasn't that long ago, I, I forget exactly how many years, it just, my jaw dropped. And from there, I started digging into a number of different resources, all of which are publicly available, namely the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who has been tracking a lot of the erosion um, across Alaska and, you know, the, the lower 48 states. The data is horrifying. And when I kind of recall, like, how different Native tribes have, have approached these issues, like, it's, it's tragic. These are homes that you know, generations of individuals have lived in, families, and they've been there for thousands of years. And a lot of them have had to relocate. It's it's heavy. And I could definitely get emotional talking about it, but that really opened my eyes. And uh, shortly after that, I got involved in nonprofit work and I uh, worked with the, the ACLU for a little bit. And the work there was just incredible. And I did some work as well with AmeriCorps liaising with the Army Corps of Engineers at times. But yeah, I, I kind of pivoted my life and now I'm with the EPA here in Seattle and it's it's been great. I'm, I'm really happy that I've been able to align my career uh, with, I, I think I would call these values that I have now around the environment. Interesting. Around yeah, change. yeah. A couple follow-up questions. It was a pivotal moment, the Wales coastline that you saw how much it had changed seeing mm -hmm. from this photo comparison. What specifically had changed? I would say like anywhere from 100 to 120 feet of coastline were no longer there. It was covered wow. in water? Yeah. It just, the, the beach was at that time, maybe 20 feet long. And the photo, which was close to an aerial photo, there are aerial photos that kind of show this, but as I mentioned, taken from a mountaintop just outside of town and you could see dozens, if not like over a hundred feet of coastline was just gone. Wow. Yeah. And what caused the coastline had disappeared. It was erosion. Erosion. Just the, yeah, just the degradation of the sand and the soil in that area, which was uh, helped by permafrost uh, melting, which 
yeah, to kind of educate anybody not aware, permafrost is permanently frozen ground that is in some cases held in place by that ice. When when you get freezing aspects, the ice expands and it acts a lot like concrete. And so some building sites up on the north slope of Alaska, the very Arctic coast up there, actually rely heavily on ice and creating ice to maintain uh, oil wells, uh, drilling platforms, and in many cases, villages. And so when the ice starts to melt because um, of gradually increasing temperatures and longer summers and shorter winters, the ice is not as stable. It will melt. And from there, you have basically collapse of structures and of landmass. Kind of pivoting a little bit to my last uh, long-term Alaska experience, I spent a year in a village called Port Hayden. And Port Hayden was amazing. It was a, a village of 100 people. And they had lost, I think, about 100 feet of coastline the year before. They had already had to relocate their village once because the shores were getting closer and closer. And so they moved wow. inland by about a mile. Yeah, and, and I, I caught them after that relocation, but it was intense, especially hearing the elders talk about you know the old village and uh, tears would come to their eyes when they realized like a lot of their structures were no longer there. I think by the time wow. I got there, there were like five dilapidated old homes at the old village site. Because they would have to keep Amazing. moving homes and structures back and back further. Yeah. Because degradation is just like land becoming softer and falling apart and then going into the, the ocean. Yeah. And okay. one of the tertiary effects of climate change that is really hard to track and attribute to climate change is storm surge and just ever more aggressive hurricanes and you know typhoons. Weather patterns have gotten statistically more intense in our era of life. And a lot of scientists attribute that to climate change. And I don't know if I'm the person to, uh, to really walk us through that science, but there, there's a lot of good yeah. information out there. Yeah. Right. So you had this draw out of college to head to Alaska. Can we talk a little bit about your story getting up there? Like yeah, what pulled sure. you to Alaska? Well, going to grad school, uh, my law school experience in Oregon was really neat. I, I befriended some amazing individuals who, along with being pretty left-leaning, um, they were very into hiking, camping, rock climbing, and they took me out a bunch, being kind of an urban kid from LA and then Detroit, and then I went to school in Boston and uh, studied in London for a little bit. It was it was kind of just, you know, the, the urban concrete mountains were, right. were all that I knew. <laughs> Yeah, but I think deep in my heart, I had always had a longing. I'm a big fan of Henry David Thoreau and a, a lot of similar authors that kind of created this captivation with the wilds and getting outside and being amongst nature that wasn't really awakened until I got the opportunity to cultivate this community in law school. And I'd say three of my best friends in that circle were, were all from Alaska. And Alaskans just had this like substance to them. I describe it now as soulfulness. Like Alaskans have a lot of soul. It's really cool to see. And so the way that they would talk about Alaska and the way that just they came across and when I met their families, when they would pass through, they all had a lot of character, a lot of conviction. And having never set foot in Alaska, decided I need to get a job there. I needed to move yeah, there immediately after graduating. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thrilled by kind of the great unknown. And it is to this day, I think America's wild west still. Like there's a lot of lawlessness, oh, unfortunately. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity to be had. Yeah, it's the last frontier still. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. In so many ways. I totally agree. 
So you go up there, you head to Alaska, and you actually start working for oil and gas. Because I'm assuming that's who had jobs at the time yeah, when you were the up there. Yeah. Right? That was the power of the economy. But you start bumping into this. You're not feeling great. You said you started working for nonprofits. Can you dig in there a little bit more? Like, what do you mean? How did you meet these elders that you kind of referenced in that group? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So it started with volunteering for the ACLU. And the American Civil Liberties Union is sort of like America's nonprofit law firm. They handle all sorts of stuff. Everything from the recent, not so recent now, but the timely uh, gay marriage legalization at the Supreme Court. That was an ACLU case. Your Miranda rights, whenever somebody gets arrested, that came from an ACLU case. So basically the, the civil rights landscape of America has been cast into stone by the ACLU and they have been pivotal in any number of civil liberties victories that we as a people have obtained over our generations. And so working with them was like a dream come true. I mean, they are all wow. over my constitutional yeah. law books. Yeah. <laughs> and they just kind of needed help. And I, I'm always willing to, to lend a hand. And I was amongst some very hardcore, passionate activists. And I was like, yes, like I, I like these people. Nice. This is what I'm about. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. through that network, I, I got hooked up with some opportunities uh, through some nonprofits. I, I think the, the best work that I did was with AmeriCorps, who AmeriCorps sort of um, feeds nonprofits. I was a part of the VISTA program, which is all about increasing capacity for nonprofits throughout America. And that project base was really cool. It allowed for uh, a region of tribes to pool resources to get what's called an intertribal court system going. And that's really important for like juror selection, because when you're in a community of 100 people, like chances are jurors know everybody. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Or, or getting judges from other villages because same kind of problem, conflicts of interest. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it was a fascinating lens to both glimpse kind of like the sociology of a very small community in a legal kind of mindset, but also how do we really maximize the resources that we have as a collective of communities? And that led to some cool experiences and eventually kind of seeing a lot more of Alaska than I ever thought I would. Nice. And so it was a few of these elders. So you're working with one of these villages and it was mm -hmm. one of these elders who shows you this coastline and yeah. this picture and you take even yet another turn as I, I mean, the, the environmental turn, right? Yeah. And you start going down that path. Interesting. Yeah. I would say that the elders of any village are, are by far the, the most amazing individuals that I've ever met. There's a lot of deference in the Alaska native communities to their elders but unfortunately, a lot of these elders have lived through some some terrible things. Uh, I've, I've met an elder that lived through the Spanish flu. Wow. That, yeah, that knocked out like a full third of the Alaska native population. Sure. Um, wow. Yeah, that, wow. that village that I mentioned in Wales, I think like two thirds of their population got knocked out. Like it was some really sad stuff um, to say nothing of like the generational trauma of the Russian occupation. I don't think a lot of people realize that the Russians basically like enslaved the Alaska native population during their time there. Wow. It, was, it was a brutal occupation. When was yeah, that? Dude. Oh, that was right before uh, America bought Russia. Um, <laughs> yeah, Russia Russia was kind of the first colonial era presence in Alaska that was from outside. Was this 1900s? And, when? Uh, no, this was before that. Let me, let me make sure I'm not giving you any incorrect dates, but the Russian occupation of Alaska, I want to say started in the 1700s. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the Russians started to occupy Alaska. 
yeah, I wasn't too far off. <laughs> uh, 1725 is when that started. Yeah. And then uh, America bought it in the late 1800s. Yeah, eight, wow. 1867. Wow. So, yeah, it was basically 125 years of Russia just ransacking. They were mostly there for furs, honestly. They they didn't really see uh-huh. or realize right. any, any value in the gold or the platinum or the silver. It was just how much can we get really quickly out of these native tribes? And if there was gold or silver to be had, they definitely took it. But the way that I've heard it told, and I've read some histories on this, but I've, I've talked with a lot of folks, is that Russia would come into a community. First thing they would do, they would kill the chief. Second thing they would do is kill like the medicine man or the shaman or whatever kind of holy position there was. And sometimes it was a, it was a matrilineal line, depending on the community and the, uh, and the native tribe in question. So they would kill the medicine woman or, um, or their equivalent. And basically, you know, that kills the political leadership and then the spiritual leadership. So tribes were lost. As a, as a result, like a lot of language, a lot of their religion, oh, spirituality wow. has been has been just you know lost in time, unfortunately, and that kind of continued later on. A lot of communities were forced to give up their children for these. I forget what the schools were called, but they were basically unwilling magnet schools. That um, <laughs> yeah, like kids were not allowed to speak their native language. They were not allowed to participate in rituals or any parts of their culture that were not white. A lot of Canadian native communities experienced the same thing. It was brutal. It was tragic. And I think it's kind of a black mark on our, on our country's history, but the, yeah, the, Russian, yeah. the Russian dealings were worse. Is Right, right. I can definitely say. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. So you make this shift, you, you meet these folks. It sounds like an amazing time. And then you make this shift and we, we touched on it a bit, but what is, I mean, just to start from the beginning, yeah. Nixon creates this agency, as Jacob pointed out earlier, yeah. the EPA. Getting us back. Uh, you, you, yeah. Why, why was it created? Why was the EPA created at the end of the day? I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm an EPA super nerd. I have been for a while. I, <laughs> I love it. I, I really love this agency and its work, but especially the people. I Some of the people that I've met have just been the most brilliant, incredibly passionate humans that I've ever come across in this world. And yeah, there's my big old plug. Love <laughs> Super it. nerd love status. It. Yeah. Um, so the EPA kind of came to be under President Nixon in 1970 after a series of really awareness spreading events. Unfortunately, two of the three major ones were quite tragic. But the thing that kicked off the whole show was Rachel Carson, who actually has a boat named after her here uh, that's at University of Washington. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, she's she's quite famous. Oh, wow. really, really cool lady. She published in 1962 a book about pesticides and about the long-term effects that pesticides have on life. She was a bird watcher back then, and she was noticing how birds that were hanging out around crops that had heavy use of pesticides were dying. And so the name of that book was called Silent Spring. And the silent part of that is that the the forests that were kind of around these crops uh, we're becoming silent. There was no more bird song to be had. Right. And well, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that book was a big jump off in the American public's awareness of environmental issues and especially our impacts on the environment. And the other two instances were just pretty sad and shocking, I think. But uh, one actually happened down in California, Ty, where you and I uh, have our points of origin. Uh, there was a major tanker that that spilled. Pretty sure it was near L.A. And that created 
kind of a widespread concern for, oh God, like a spill could happen anywhere. This this could be in right. our backyard. And then something even more explosive, I think, which really kicked off a widespread campaign of the American public, but especially the media towards cleaning up uh, our environmental resources was that the Cuyahoga River in Ohio in 1969 was so polluted that it caught on fire, like literally spontaneously oh. combusted. And it was wow. a huge fire. Of river. Yeah, it was insane. And it, it basically brought like a lot of the Great Lakes, which was a major commerce center for the U.S. Sure. at that time, sure. brought it to a standstill. The, oh. the fires and, and the smoke from the fires had tremendous impacts on wow. the entire region. So that happened in 1969. A year later, actually not even a year, I think it was like six months later, Richard Nixon signed the EPA into law as an executive agency, which basically means it's under the power of the executive, the presidential branch. Over the court, yeah, over the court. We've ju- we just celebrated uh, 50 years, actually, not wow. too long ago. Yeah. And yeah. Over the course of that time, um, it's it's really spread out to a lot of different directions. The EPA has an amazing suite of offerings that I think it, it provides to the American public, and I'm, I'm just real happy to be aboard. Yeah, that, that's great. When it was formed, what was was there like a charter? Was this the disasters that you brought up are big? And so was there a direction, a philosophy that kind of the EPA like launched under when it when it when it kicked off? Or was it like go figure this out kind of a thing? Yeah. So it was, I believe, under an executive reorganization, which is a fancy way of saying we're gonna shuffle things up a bit. And um yeah, he had a proposal put forth that kind of merged pollution control, which had been proposed by Congress earlier. But this kind of brought it under one roof, along with a combination of pesticides programs and just kind of general like oversight into uh, water quality and elements of like Uh the public health service. Yeah. Yeah. And so 50 years in, has the philosophy, focus, direction of the EPA changed at all? I think so. Yeah. I would say that, you know, from what I've heard and what I've researched, I wasn't around in the 1970s, um, (laughs) but it it sounds like the focus of the EPA was a lot more on monitoring and enforcing environmental laws. It was, it was sort of a watchdog slash like the policeman of the environment. And today, while that is still a significant element of what the EPA does, there is also a huge amount of the EPA funding that goes towards grants. And grant making is actually, I'd say, one of the bigger functions of the EPA today. So for Grants for what? Yeah, I'm so excited you asked that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Grants for all sorts of stuff, but anything environmental related that you can think of, the EPA probably has a grant for it. Anything from uh, education grants, which I I think are probably our most effective because education grants are all about spreading awareness in our schools and in after hours education uh, programs, all about the environment and what you can do on a small scale, but eventually small scales become big scales um, to help the human health and the environment, which is incredible. But that's that's to say nothing of the small governments that are funded. So we're talking like municipalities counties throughout the United States that are funded uh, to have, you know, everything from conservation to environmental cleanups. Yeah, along with nonprofits, nonprofits are funded by EPA grants that allow them to take on any number of initiatives in a lot of different directions, uh, recycling, composting, like in renewable energy. 
there's just a lot of breadth to what the EPA now funds. And I think part of that model sort of we're, we're now delegating the environmental work. I, I think it's been a tremendous success and it, it's great to see how it's evolved into uh, empowering the American people to, to act on these very critical issues that our country is facing. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. 